This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And my guest today is Scott Metzger, who started his professional career in academia as an economics professor and in the banking and oil refining industries before finding his calling in one of the more fun, flavorful uh, industries, the world of craft brewing. Uh, he had that homebrewer's dream and a vow made on New Year's Eve in 2005 and Freetail Brewing his brewery, officially opened on Black Friday in 2008, becoming at the time San Antonio's second operating brewery and Scott's first completed New Year's resolution. Coming from a place where craft beer was, and still is in many respects, uh, very much a niche product, Freetail set out to change San Antonio's impression of what beer was and could be. Freetail originally operated strictly as a brew pub with two go bombers uh, sales until 2014 when it opened up a production brewery. Um, following Texas laws changing. And now today, Freetail operates both the production brewery and the brew pub and will produce about 5,000 barrels combined this year. Scott's a member of the Brewers Association Board of Directors. Uh, he served two two-year terms as an at-large member, and for the past year, he served as chair of the Events and Diversity Committees. Uh, past committee work includes the brew pubs and finance committees. He's also a five-time veteran CBC speaker and has served on the CBC seminar subcommittee. Scott, welcome to the broadcast after that very long <laughs> and very, very thorough introduction that you gave me. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for having me. And uh, I didn't realize that you were going to re read the whole thing. I would have made it a little shorter for you. <laughs> It's, it's early. This is GABF week. We are here in Denver. We're recording at our hotel, so thanks for, for coming out uh, early. Um, my voice is going to get progressively worse as the week goes on, so I'm glad we're getting this, this in early. Uh, and you just flew in this morning as well, so we'll see when that coffee kicks in for both of us. Yeah, and I'm going to progressively get tired as the days roll on as well, so I'm glad we knocked. This is my first thing we're doing. Talk to me about that New Year's resolution. And to go from academics and to go from uh, what is a, a pretty studious industry to one that is demands a lot of attention, but is also wildly different. Uh, yeah, you know, my dream and, and my, my story was not, I don't think, very different than what we see of, you know, around the landscape of, of the rest of the country. Um, I think the only, the only really key unique thing about it is that we were in San Antonio where uh, until that time, nobody um, dared to, you know, execute the same kind of uh, dream and follow through the same kind of passion. And in fact, uh, a lot of people thought uh, those who did, meaning me, were stupid. So, um, was that Texas specific or just San Antonio specific? I, I, you know, Austin, uh, you know, has had a had a long booming scene, mm -hmm. um, but you know, even. Yeah, at that time, Houston and Dallas were were not uh, by any means uh, booming, and re really outside of Austin, the entire state was kind of a craft beer wasteland. I think uh, when we opened, there was something like eight breweries operating in, in Texas, you know, which is the second you know highest beer consuming state in the country. Um, so that's it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, um, you, you know, simply from a supply and demand perspective. Um, you know, I, I kind of got into beer after uh, moving away for a little bit. I lived in uh, in Manhattan for uh, a short stay at uh, in grad school, and kind of got introduced to a lot of imports and not so much American craft per se, but well, more yeah, no, New York's still has a beer town, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and especially you know this was um, you know two thousand one, two thousand two, yeah. uh, but you, you know, and honestly, before then. Um, you know, like in college, I really didn't like beer. Uh, was going to college in Texas, uh, you know, the options uh, were fairly limited. Lone to Star, Shiner, Bud, Bud Light. You know, yeah. A fancy party in college would have a keg of Shiner, Ooh. right? Uh, yeah. You know, um, but it was usually natty. Okay. Um, so I was not a big beer fan in college. <laughs> uh, it, so it wasn't until, um, you know, Moving on, being a professional, um, 
for for a little while and then and then going to grad school in new york and being introduced to you know wider range of flavors that i really um, got interested in 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 beer in general uh and then i moved back to san antonio in 2003 um got introduced uh to craft beer in a bigger way uh when the flying saucer um you know a great uh craft beer chain sure. around in the south uh, opened up a location in san antonio uh right across the street from my apartment and uh, it was, you know, it was all kind of downhill from there. Did you do the whole tour? Did you get your, uh, uh, your, got a, your have, saucer on the wall? I have a few plates, okay. yeah, that, uh, that uh, you know, now are, are some of the best POS our brewery has. You know, <laughs> we've, we've just put a Freetail sticker on that plate. And yep. It's in a great location. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't buy that kind of, uh, that kind of placement. <laughs> well, well, you can. It costs uh, 400 beers. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, but but that was my inter- my you know how I got into craft beer and then I started home brewing, um, and 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 at that time I was uh, you know working in uh, for for a large oil refining company traveling around the country, um, a, a lot of the times to California uh, where we had some refineries, and uh, you know we'd spend our spare time going to the yard house or or if there was happened to be a, a brewery um, you know we would stop in and. Uh, you know, really got turned on and said, hey, this is happening all around the country. It's not happening in Texas. It's definitely not happening in San Antonio. Um, and then my, um, you know, my, my curiosity started to run wild. And like, well, why can't, why can't that happen in San Antonio? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, toyed with the idea for a few years. Um, you know, had kind of some mock business plan. You know, I wouldn't even call them serious business plans, <laughs> but kind of done some of the rough economics on it. And... Uh, Hey, I think that could be viable. Uh, so when some friends and I were on a ski trip uh, in 2005 uh, on New Year's Eve uh, in Albuquerque at uh, at Shama River Brewing, which I'm, I'm a little was a little sad to read, uh, they just closed. closed. Yeah, just yeah. closed. So that, that's a, that's a place that's special to me because that's where I, I kind of told my friends like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Uh, that, was my, that was my New Year's resolution, and not only is the first one I've ever kept, but still the only one I've ever kept. Uh, to, to open a brewery in San Antonio, so uh, it took around it you know it took three years um, to go from deciding to do it to executing it. Uh, you know, I was let's see in, in 2005 when I made that decision, I was 26 years old. Um, so you know, going to meet with banks and landlords and um, things like that didn't necessarily always go well. Um, you know, they tend to. Uh, and especially, you know, as we got closer and closer to 2008, they were very not keen on lending some, you know, 20-year-old uh, a bunch of money. Sure, but with a finance background, though, I mean, you, you obviously looked into it and saw that you could make it work. And, and But what I find interesting, though, is that you opened up a brew pub to begin with. Because, I mean, these days, nobody's really thinking about opening up a brew pub. But back then, you, you had to. I mean, there's really no other viable option uh, if you were going to be be small like you had to have just also by virtue of state law uh if you wanted to sell beer out your door uh that's the way that you had to do it yeah you know and looking around the landscape in texas i was really seeing the breweries um uh you know have a hard time getting a lot of footing uh because of the fact that they they couldn't have any kind of tap room or or anything like that um so i and that was from an economic perspective you know that limited the viability of the model um so and also you know like many of my peers uh were inspired by the tale of uh this dude in delaware who um you know started a brew pub and and turned it into uh what today is an empire uh in dogfish head oh is that is that still around is that still uh, yeah i think yeah. so okay. i think they're doing okay um <laughs> so um you know that was very much an inspiration and, and the model of uh you know starting out as a brew pub uh, and using that to build a reputation by which we could launch um, our our wholesale business off of um, the the big key that I knew going in um, was that this was that was not legal to do in Texas, mm-hmm. um, and it was even you know part of my business plan was to uh, you know and if this is in a business plan that you you know if your business plan includes this if you're writing one or if you're reviewing one and this line appears in the business plan you should probably just shred it and move on with your life that was uh you know part of the business plan was to go and change the law um <laughs> which seemed you know easy enough some guy sure some guy in delaware did it yeah right? for for his 
uh, you know, business. Why couldn't I uh, in free market, you know, Texas, right? Um, <laughs> the Republic of, yes. Yes. So uh, didn't, didn't mind any, didn't, didn't think that was going to be a problem at all. Uh, so went ahead and opened the brew pub, which was, which was, which was great. And, and looking back at the, the context by which, you know, tap rooms are flourishing now, mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, I was a little accidentally ahead of uh, my time in terms of how we were operating. Because uh, in Texas, you were allowed to sell beer to go if you were a brew pub. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we exploited that fully at our brew pub. Uh, started doing, you know, rare one-off releases. Of the only, you know, probably 900-barrel brew pub uh, in the country that had a bottling line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, They got regular use, yeah. They, yeah, they got regular use. And, and we were doing the same. We kind of... Uh, you know, invented what I call the Texas bottle release, which uh, still to this day exists only for brew pubs. And uh, Jester King um, has taken it to a completely different <laughs> level that I could never have, have dreamt of. But, you know, this idea of, you know, these are beers that are only available at, our, at the brewery. Um, you know, we'll, we'll bottle them up. We'll have a special event. We'll release them. We'll have 500 people on our patio at 6 a.m. Uh, uh, I'll get upset. Um, I'll write a blog, blog post, ask him not to do it anymore, and then next time, six hundred people will be on the patio. Uh, so it was uh, it, it was a, an amazing experience that that generated um, you know an, a nice return that uh, you know, you know uh, for for that I'd never really even dreamed we we would achieve that level of success um, when we added that that additional layer of these you know releases. Um, so that's kind of the story of you know. You know pre-law changing a free tale and how we got to be, you know, making beers that San Antonio definitely was not ready for, uh, which, you know, in, in 2008, San Antonio really wasn't even ready for IPA. So yeah. it wasn't hard to push the boundaries. Um, but, uh, but we certainly did, uh, in things that are, you know, today are kind of passe and normal, like craft brewery checklist things, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, barreled age, uh, beers, uh, you know, wild ales, um, using various odd ingredients, um, you know, stuff like that. So uh, back then, that was that was a big deal. As somebody who has been covering this industry for uh, quite a while now, uh, Texas was never on the national radar. Uh, it just it just wasn't. Uh, people were talking about obviously uh, progressive states like Colorado or Vermont or Oregon. Uh, you know, California kind of got its act together pretty early. Some of the East Coast states, even Delaware, uh, you know, salmon and dogfish aside, like never really, you know, embraced it, it, it too much. And then all of a sudden in 2014, with their events, the, the laws changed in Texas. The stuff that you wanted to do early on and uh, other brewers who came on, you all kind of came together uh, and changed the law. And then suddenly everybody nationally, especially from the economic standpoint, was looking at Texas. Texas suddenly became the Wild West again, and you had huge national brands that had, you know, been in there, but, you know, uh, craft brands who had been in there but not really doing much with it uh, started making huge pushes, and then you had brands, you know, like Bells, who uh, never would have thought of opening up Texas. Uh, you know, they're, they're coming in, and now you know, I think pretty much all the top 25 are in there, um, you know, as well. So what changed and what happened? Uh I think, you know, for some context, I, I remember pretty vividly um, standing in, in the um, warehouse of um, Independence Brewing in, two, in 2012. There in Austin. In, in yeah. Austin. And we, were, and we were discussing, you know, what we want, hope to accomplish in 2013. And uh, I had a whiteboard that kind of laid out this plan that I had devised of what, what we were going to try to accomplish. Uh, and there were, I think, 30 of us there. And that was like every brewery and brew pub in the state at the time and there were 30 of us and today there's close to 300 um and you know and that's a growth rate that we've seen everywhere right Mm -hmm. we've gone from i think you know in 2008 there were like 1100 brewers on open and then we have you know 6,000. so yeah you know but but it's been an accelerated growth rate in texas especially after we changed those laws so you know the two big hurdles that we had that were holding back the industry uh, in my opinion, and I and I think a lot of why Texas wasn't talked about um, was that you know part of it is that demand isn't quite what it is in other places, but then you know supply was not pushing demand. You know, people were not being introduced to craft beer because there was no craft breweries to introduce them uh, to it. Uh, so 
uh, you know, what we were seeing is, uh, you know, kind of the classic situation of, you know, you can say that, well, people don't drink that there. Well, yeah, but people can't drink what is not available to them. Right. So, so we, what we did in 2013 was, was really open it up for breweries to be a viable business. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned, people thought it was kind of dumb to open a brewery in 2008, and especially in San Antonio. And I'm not, I wouldn't say they were, they were wrong. I mean, it was, it was a risky proposition, um, especially if you were going to go outside of the norm of, um, you know, kind of making your standard, uh, what I call your, your typical uh, 90s, early 2000s uh, flight of, uh, you know, blonde, wheat, pale, amber you know yeah. and maybe maybe the fifth was a porter if we were getting wild right um so what was holding it back were, were two specific um uh, not laws per se but but things that were not allowed mm-hmm. um because in texas we have a, we still have a unique law that says if it's not specifically allowed it is automatically considered to be illegal so, uh, there, you know, and, and the joke we have is that, you know, it, we're unclear whether or not it's legal to pick your nose in a brewery in Texas because uh, it's not <laughs> specifically allowed. So, um, uh, so, so, but the two, the two laws we sought to change was the first was uh, brew pubs were not allowed to sell their beer distributors uh, or sell to other retailers. So right. everything a brew pub made had to be only at the brew pub. Right. Uh, the second Made there at that door, yeah. right, right, and the second was a production brewery uh, was not allowed to have any sales direct to consumers. Okay, uh, so no tap room, uh, or they could have a tap room, but they had to do this weird tour model where you buy a tour and get some tokens and a glass and, right. the, and a couple the, of ounces. Yeah. Right, right, uh, but you know if if you know, in the, but you didn't have to buy the tour to get the free beer because it's illegal to sell beer. So if I only give you beer in conjunction with a tour, I'm de facto selling it to you. So, you know, they, they'd have this tour set up, but you could just walk in and say, I'm just here for my free beer. Right. And they would have to give it to you. Um, <laughs> because that's a lot safer and protects, you know, against intemperance than selling people beer, as we know. And, and all this goes back to intemperance, right? Uh, in allegedly yes um so so those were the two big things um so you know there was um you know a multi-year effort you know i i really got heavily involved in it in 2009 and then again in 2011 uh and then 2013s where we finally got it done uh but there was uh you know the entire state was kind of involved in varying levels uh you know some people just being supportive to to writing a check to hire a lobbyist to actually going uh up to the capitol and and becoming amateur lobbyists and uh and for me i was you know chief amateur lobbyist in the sense that uh you know i spent more time at the capitol than i did at the brewery uh to the point where you know sometimes people wondered if i even still worked at the brewery um or not so up there a lot, uh, put together a coalition of our, our brewers to uh, fund a lobbyist and, and basically put together a structure uh, to put together, you know, not an insignificant sum uh, to pay for a, a full-time lobbyist to represent us. Um, and it was a, you know, it, it, it's a, it, was a, it was a tale that, you know, probably would make a great book one day. Um, you know, I've got lots of great stories of being accused of running a prostitution ring or uh, trying to, um, you know, lead to the legalization of marijuana. That was my ultimate goal. I was mm-hmm. accused of that as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we were able to get those two specific laws changed. Uh, on the production brewery side, we we didn't get uh, off-premise sales. That's what I was so, going to say. So that, right. that's the one big hurdle that you guys yeah, have we still left. Have. We're the last state left in the country that uh, you can't buy a six-pack or a growler or a bomber from a production brewery and take it with you. Uh, but we, what we have done... Well, wait, or, but, yeah. but, but, I mean, no. that seems crazy. I mean, what, what's holding that back? The, so um, there, there's a, a, a case that is still before... Uh, the district court, uh, and um, I had the pleasure of being an expert witness and being deposed for 11 hours by the state, uh, who you know challenged the very notion that that breweries should be allowed to um, 
you know, engage in, in, in this kind of activity. And it's, a, it's an enthralling, you know, 200 page read. If you want to, you know, I'll, I'll post the link to my deposition up on, on Twitter or something. And someone can just like blow their brains out reading 200 pages of this, of this nonsense. Uh, but essentially, you know, that you know, it goes back to the nonsensical arguments that, you know, we're trying to prevent or, uh, you know, stop organized crime and prevent intemperance. And, you know, it really goes back to the repeal of prohibition arguments. Absolutely. That, cause that's all there is to stand on there. Okay. Cause what, uh, so it's the middle tier of the three tier system. That's, that's, essentially preventing you guys from selling beer out of your production breweries. Absolutely. And I think it goes to what we're seeing around the country is that, um, you know, the middle tier uh, has for a very long time been granted the exclusive right to have a risk-free return off of, you know, being the middleman Mm -hmm. and the middleman doesn't like to get cut out. Right. Um, Which, you know, sounds kind of organized crime ish Mm -hmm. to some extent, uh, but but they don't like being left out of a transaction. And uh, we had a law passed in 2017 in Texas, which kind of illustrates that, uh, which is so. So and I'll come back to kind of the arguments against the, the to go sales. But, yeah, but this kind of this kind of illustrates this is what we passed in 2017 because breweries are allowed to have a tap room and, you know, sell pints across the bar. Uh, you know, the wholesalers were not liking the way this was going. So they basically passed a law that says breweries can do this. And, and right now it's breweries of a certain size and it really only affects Oscar blues, new brewery in Austin breweries can engage in this activity, but they have to pay, uh, the wholesaler markup for the beer. Essentially they have to sell the beer to the wholesalers and then buy it back. Yeah. But the brewery, but the wholesaler never touches the beer. Right. It's it's just, it doesn't yeah. even leave the brewery. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a tax, a royalty, a yeah. tithe, you know, whatever you want to call it. A kickback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and essentially, that's what it is. And and you know, there's there, there's a lot of question of what value does that serve anyone except for distributors, and it's all but it's all wrapped up in this you know sanctity of the three tier system, which is you know bullshit. You, you know, it's yeah, yeah. So how do you engage your customers on this level? Because, I mean, if you're spending a lot of time at the state house, you're obviously you know, beating your brains out for that. But it, the three-tiered system is such a foreign thing for most. Everybody knows – maybe not everybody knows, but the majority, I think, of beer drinkers knows that it exists and knows the basic thrust of it. Um, so how do you try to – and do consumers play a role in trying to change this? Or does it really have to come – from the business owners themselves? I think they do play some role, but I think that it, the, three, the, the term three-tier system has been bandied around so much that it's almost, it's become so convoluted and misunderstood by consumers that it's, it's sometimes even counterproductive for them to engage on it. Uh, because look, I am a supporter of the three-tier system. Uh, the, the real three-tier system, not the make-believe one um, that is used, you know, as a protectionist leg, uh, you know, to for for by distributors essentially. Um, but I but I really you know believe it's it's the best system. And you know, you, we traveled to other countries. I was just in Mexico, um, you know, last week, and um, you know, new brewers there are struggling because they don't have a three-tier system, right? And uh, the distribution network is owned by uh, the two main breweries down there, ABI and Heineken. And, uh, and Heineken also owns, uh, you know, the largest sea store outlet in Mexico. And it's, it's got an exclusive, you know, for their products. That's perfectly okay. So the three tier system is really important. And that's what consumers don't have a hard time, you know, justifying or, or reconciling with the fact that they hate all the other things that hold breweries back. Um, and, and to them, that's the three-tier system. So you'll, you'll find them all, the three-tier system's got to go, right? And, I'm like, and, and there's brewers saying, like, well, no, it doesn't have to go. Uh, but, it, but we need to really stick to what the, the true intent of the three-tier system is and not, you know, make-believe ones or ones that really are arguments that don't hold up today, like organized crime, intemperance, Blah blah blah. Sure. I mean, I haven't heard the state tell us that uh, you know if well if you sold a six pack to go, 
at your brewery, wouldn't that lead to more drunk driving? Which is a nonsensical argument that... Sure. You know, yeah, so even if they did get in their car and just shotgun six beers right as they part and then drive off... Um, you know that that risk exists. which we're not encouraging anybody to do, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But that risk exists today. Sure. You know, there's other places to buy six packs. Uh, the source of the the purchase doesn't doesn't change anything. So I think my favorite yeah. in that just in that vein is that Pennsylvania has drive-through liquor stores. Yeah, it, like you can actually pull up like you would at a McDonald's and get you know. And Texas Texas <laughs> yeah. does too. And do they really? Yeah. Okay. And, and we have. Uh, and I don't know if if you can do this in Pennsylvania because this is my favorite part of Texas drive-through liquor stores. You can get a frozen daiquiri to go. That's basically a, um, a you know, da- a frozen daiquiri, yeah. like a margarita, uh-huh. but it's sealed because it's in a plastic bag, and they provide you a straw. You know that like later, a Capri Sun, like kind yeah. of yeah. Well, it's it's like it's the cup, but then it's in like a Ziploc bag. Okay, but you know it, it's like if if you've ever seen um, you know how people drink. Um, juice in vietnam right it's just like uh-huh. a plastic bag with a straw in it yeah so yeah you just poke your 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 straw through the plastic bag and you're drinking your daiquiri sure but you know it's sealed because it's in a plastic bag with some tape you know, right you know? um but that's okay right Be- but you know, and even if you're not drinking you know in in the car you're gonna have to speed really fast to get it home before it melts absolutely so, you know, so it's, it's a double you do, double you whammy you're um <laughs> I want to switch gears with you because um, I want to talk about the, the, the boards that you're on uh, with the Brewers Association. So the, the events committee, obviously, GABF is – this is the big one, right? Uh, well, CBC is equally as, as big okay. uh, for us. But um, th- well, that's more yeah. industry. and Right, right. Yeah. Um, th- they're both as um, – I assure you, they're both as as stressful for the staff, um, and, and but uh, obviously this is our our biggest public facing, um, you know, and with forty five thousand you know beer drinkers converging on the convention center, um, it's it's the highlight of the year for sure from a from a beer drinker perspective. Um, so we're here for another one. I think this one's you know going to be bigger and better than any you know each year we just continue to to improve uh, we certainly have more breweries than uh, we ever had before um how many the, this year uh i don't i don't know at the top of my more head more than last year but more than yes. last year okay um in and more entries in the competition than ever before as well and i don't know that number either but uh we continue to push the limits of what our judge judges can achieve um so it's um, it, but it, but it's exciting, and that and that's you know, ultimately you know we try to keep in mind what's best for the beer drinker in this experience because it is an experience for them. Um, so while there's increased logistical challenges to increase the size of this thing uh, every year, um, you know that's you know what people are people people want more options. Um, they want to discover you know uh, new breweries, but they also want to you know get the ones that. You know, aren't available in their area, uh, and I think that's what we provide. You know, it's kind of a nice one-stop shop uh, for people to experience, uh, you know, beers they've never had before. You guys changed some of the rules for some of the breweries that participate this year. Right? We've obviously seen the independent seal come out, independent uh, sort of replacing the word craft to define small breweries these days as uh, Anheuser and Heineken and Constellation and a lot of other large brands are coming in and and buying smaller breweries and adding them to their portfolio. Uh, So we're going to see that uh, independent, uh, that uh, upside down bottle uh, label around quite a bit. But you guys also made the decision uh, to, and since it is not the Great American Craft Beer Festival and and that these larger breweries have always been uh, invited to uh, participate and, you know, I remember Miller High Life has had its own booth for the last couple of years and people line up and goofily drink it and, you know, they have a good time with it. But some of those uh, participating breweries, if the ownership doesn't jive with the BA's definition, what the BA wants, um, we're not going to see them in the same places uh, this time around. And can you kind of talk about, you know, how that decision came about and, and, and why you're saying that you want to give, you know, uh, what's best for the beer drinker? Um, how does removing them from end caps, how does uh, sort of decreasing their presence, how does that play in to be a best experience for the beer drinker? Well, on that end, I, you know, what we really did is, you know, we have a, a limited number of sponsorships and, um, you know, w- with uh, demand for them exceeding supply. Um, so we really focused that on, on uh, for, for members. Um, so um, members of the Brewers Association. Members of the Brewers Association, right. So, 
uh, and voting members who meet the, the definitions. Because uh, to be clear, you know, ABI, Miller Coors Constellation are also, and, and some of their, their um, subsidiary breweries individually are, are also members of the, of the BA, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not voting members. But so, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, those end caps were going towards, um, you know, the, the voting member breweries who, um, you know, really embody, um, you know, what the, the mission of the Brewers Association, um, because we were also getting feedback of, you know, here you are talking about the value of independence or, you know, the craft definition. But, you know, we as an association have no problem accepting a $35,000 sponsorship from ABI. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that a bit hypocritical? So, um, yeah, maybe it was a little hypocritical. So we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, so it's kind of a twofold, you know, giving our members more of an opportunity to get that, you know, in cap space uh, if they desire it. But then also, you know, ending that, you know, kind of potentially hypocritical area of accepting money from uh, you know the companies that we are, you know, uh, don't embody the, those the, the values and, and mission of the Brewers Association, uh, which is to promote and protect um, you know small independent craft brewers. What do you see when you're working on events like this and things change? Uh, and, and beer's always been a fluid situation, no no pun intended, uh, especially with you know the the, the craft uh, definition uh, having changed multiple times over the years. When when you're thinking about events and you're thinking about the CBC or Saver or GABF or, or any of the other things that, that that you guys are doing, what's the what's the thing that keeps you up at night? What's the thing that well, this week, um, you, you know, with the tragedy in Las Vegas, that's mm-hmm. been, um, you know, the immediate concern. How do we ensure the safety of the people visiting? And, uh, you know, we made some, we've made some big changes along the lines of security and safety over the last few years. So we'd already been moving that direction, and, uh, and we feel really good about our security plan. Okay. So that's a big part of it. Um, but, you know, other than that, I think, um, you know, for me, honestly, that that'd be a great question for uh, Nancy Johnson, uh, the events director for the BA, because she probably stays up at night and worries. But for me, I have so much faith in her, and she's a rock star, and you know she's been acknowledged by you know event associations oh, sure. yeah, you know, no. several times for being so. I mean, she she almost you know it's 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 hard to get worried when you've got. Uh, you know the Michael Jordan of events in your back pocket. You know running the event, and and she is she she is absolutely wonderful. I guess what I meant was that when you're thinking about uh, changing some of these rules and when you have to uh, have mm-hmm. votes and think about for your members uh, and and think about okay we're gonna uh, you know kick butt out of uh, an end cap or we're going to you know start to you know change some of the rules around to make it you know easier for some of our members, harder for some of our members, you know th- th- that kind of thing. That that's sort of more what I meant okay. of, of of the. Um, like what are like what are the considerations that go into making these decisions? Well, I think you know as far as like you know how people fit within the craft brewer definition, I think those were you know fairly easy and straightforward. And uh, and I would push back a little bit and say the 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 BA craft definition has not changed enough over the years, in my opinion. You okay. know, it's it's changed twice, um, and you know this is a highly evolving industry, and. Um, but you know why would we want a static definition uh, when the industry continues to evolve? So um, you know, we've we've really only made two changes. We changed uh, what small is um, two to six million. To, two to yeah. six million, and uh, we changed uh, traditional. Which uh, my first meeting on the board was when we changed traditional, and uh, the way I view it is that that was correcting a mistake. Sure. Um, so I agree. Yeah, and, Jace yeah. Marty wrote a great note uh, from August Shell. Uh, and then, you know, saying we've been around forever, how how come we're not traditional? I get it from for ownership standards. Yeah. And then we saw Yingling and Straub and Shell, uh, all of these folks come in and uh, you know join the you know join the definition and the fault. I thought I think that that was a great move as well. Yeah, and and that's what I like to point to when when I hear people saying like, well, y'all are always changing the definition. Well, no, we've, we've changed it twice, and one of the times, um, I think unquestionably was. A great move that is universally supported so uh you know we can debate the two to six million and you know people are going to fall one way or another but 
let, let's focus on the traditional one. If we can do things that we all can all agree are good, why wouldn't we want to change the definition? So you're saying it hasn't changed enough then. I mean, what else would you like to see on the horizon? Like what, 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 are, what are we not thinking about as consumers right now that uh, association members are thinking of that we should be thinking of when we're defining independent or craft or you know, whatever we're going to call it going forward? I think, and this is my personal opinions sure. and not the opinions of, of the board or the association, but duly noted. Yeah, yes. I think um, you know, I think there's a discussion to be had around independence um, and what it means to be independent. And I'll I'll buffer that by saying I fully support what we're doing around independence, and I think it's vitally important. And I think it is uh, the important um, you know exogenous issue of of the time for craft beer. I still think beer quality is the most important, you know, issue for, for breweries to be looking at, you know, within their own organizations and, and what threatens the industry, you know, bad beer threatens the industry more than anything else. Sure. But as far as external threats, I think, you know, independence really is what's, um, you know, know, we're staring down the gun barrel there and, and this effort is, uh, vitally important, but I think uh, you know we're operating on a definition of independence that has existed since uh, the definition was first put in place. And I think, and I, and I don't think anyone envisioned any of these transactions and the different kinds of transactions we're seeing. And I think we probably need to sit down and have a discussion around what it truly means to be independent. Because uh, I could tell, because I think it's possible for, um, I think a brewery could be 49% owned by someone else and still be independent. And I think they could be 1% owned and not be independent. Um, you, you know, cause I think percent ownership does not, uh, is, is not a good gauge sometimes. Sure. It doesn't necessarily qualify influence. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think, and I think that's the discussion that, um, will be had uh, one way or another, whether I'm on the board next year or not, you know, and, uh, and I, it's, it's going to be a spirited debate. And, uh, you know, I'm almost not sure if I want to be there for it or not. Cause you know, it's a, I remember the two day meeting when we changed traditional yeah. uh, was, was stressful, pretty, pretty intense, intense. Yeah. And that was, and that one was easy. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. That's sort of a no brainer, uh, yeah. you know, in retrospect at least. Yeah. Um, the other board that you're on is diversity, and this is something that obviously gets talked about a lot uh, these days, and uh, it's been in news accounts for the last uh, uh, couple of years, but uh, quickly, can you kind of tell us what the mission of that particular board is? Well, it's, it's a very nascent committee. You know, we put it together earlier this year. We've been, we've been talking about it on, the board, on a board level for a number of years, um, and it was... Uh, um, Nick Purdy from Wild Heaven in, mm-hmm. in Atlanta that first kind of raised this issue in a members meeting a few years ago of, of really driving it home and standing up and saying, what are we doing? We're not, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in this room looking around and, uh, you know, we all have great ideas and we think diversity is great, but we're still a room of white dudes, uh-huh. you know, 100%. so, um, so I, I think 96%. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that really, you know, struck a chord um, with, uh, you know, both uh, BA staff and and Bob, and, but also the board. So we started thinking of, of, you know, well, we have to do something, you know, it's 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 the right thing to do. But it's also, I think, business imperative uh, for our industry. Um, you know, we we self limit um, the potential of craft beer when we don't you know, widen the tent of, of, you know, of its drinkers. Um, and certainly, you know, I think that that's a big, you know, when we talk about, you know, my hometown of San Antonio, uh, that's 60% Hispanic is the largest, uh, Hispanic majority city in the country. Um, you know, that's, and it, that's not a demographic that is as engaged with craft beer as, um, the white demographic mm-hmm. and it limits the potential for my business. And so everywhere around the country where as, as we get more and more diverse, the potential universe for drinkers gets smaller and smaller. So, um, you know, and it, it, it I, I hate to feel a little insensitive to talk about it in terms of strictly business terms, but ultimately the association, that's what we're, you know, our, our mission is not always just, is not to do the right thing. It's to promote and protect small independent craft brewers. Um, and we can do the right thing along the way, 
and and achieve our mission. So uh, we're still figuring out exactly what it is that uh, we should do. Um, we've had a few meetings and we've put together a, a good committee uh, with, with people from all around the country of lots of different backgrounds and not just uh, racial or ethnic diversity, but um, you know, gender diversity is still a big issue. Sexual orientation diversity uh, is a big issue. Um, and then you know, economic diversity is an issue um, that really is relevant to craft beer that doesn't get talked about uh, very much either. So um, you know, tackling all those fronts um, and, and seeing, I think, I think we need to figure out where we are, where we stand today, and then figure out what the next steps are gonna be. I think, you know, unfortunately, for us is that this is a very high profile issue that wants to be talked about, but it's gonna be a very slow moving issue. And I think we have decades of work in front of us, uh, but we don't have decades to figure it out. But um, you know, we're not gonna have an answer next year, maybe even the year after, but you know, start to slowly move the needle um, to um, you know, make sure that everyone is welcome uh, at the craft beer party, I like to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think has spurned out of this uh, diversity committee is uh, some of the beer names that are out there. And some of the, uh, you know, again, in the last couple of years, we've seen, uh, you know, brewers come out with labels that seemingly promote rape culture or demeaning to women or demeaning to uh, various ethnic groups and all of that. And they've sort of claimed, you know, well, yeah, but we're craft and it's okay. And, um, you know, but that's one of the things as well that can sort of help, uh, or, I'm sorry, hurt uh, this all-inclusive nature, and I know that's one of the things that you guys are also talking about on this on this committee. Yeah, and and actually, so the changes we have made around that, so uh, actually came from the events committee, not the diversity committee. Okay. Um, so you know, this year at GABF, um, you know, no one no one is censored, but if a name that uh, is considered to be offensive uh, wins a medal, uh, it won't be read from the stage, and you, we won't license our. Uh, intellectual property to that name um you know a lot of people have you know claimed this is forced censorship or something well, yeah but, by flying dog uh, most notably removing its uh, or, or yeah. pulling out of the brewers association because of this very thing right right but uh but the brewers association has a first amendment right as well mm -hmm. right and uh and it's our right to not want to be associated uh with certain things and we don't want to be associated with uh, you know, names that are deemed to be offensive. Um, who, who deems what's offensive and what's not? There is a, a panel of non-industry professionals, um, and I don't know, you know, it's kind of a bl blind panel, and I don't know who, who's on it. Okay. I know there's some marketing professionals, there's, a, um, I think, a lawyer, and I think a, like a college professor on it. Uh, and they get together, and it's if they're unanimous that that's clearly offensive, then we deem it offensive. We're we're very um, we want to be very cautious too. Um, yeah, this isn't a black and white issue. I mean, this is right, there's right. a lot of gray in this. Yeah, it's, it's it, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but 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 the point I think we can all agree around the point that um, you know I don't remember which brewery did it, but you know somebody had date grape, right? Yeah, I think. And that was a crowdsourced. Uh, I, okay. I want to say it was a brewery out of Michigan. I can't remember right now. And it was a crowdsourced um, uh, name. And, and that beer actually never got made. Right, right. But but it was the, it was yeah. the customers. Yeah. It was the, the the folks who actually put that forward. It wasn't the brewery. Interesting. Yeah. yeah there, and there's been obviously enough brewers who have come up with their own right, know, right. clearly offensive names. But Date not, Grape is yeah. one of the ones that stands yeah. out. And not to pick on that brewery, but I think you know most people, um, except for the customers who suggested it <laughs> might agree that that's too far and that's offensive and that does not belong on labels and um and if if we told someone like the the ba is not going to say date grape from the stage from its stage at gabf right i think no one would really um you know bat an eye at that but this idea of this being the first time out and not knowing what we're not going to say and and there it may not be an issue at all um, you know, we don't, cause we don't go pre-police, you know, every beer name out there. Sure. Uh, when we get the list of winners is when, you know, sit down and said, okay, this one maybe is questionable. Let's send it off to the committee. Um, so, so that'll be happening. We're, we're recording this on the Thursday of GABF. So that'll be happening tomorrow. After yeah. Judging. Today, tomorrow yeah. as, as the metal rounds start to get judged. Right. Um, and again, it may, 
nothing may happen. Um, but and then again, and I can also see a scenario which which is I think an unfortunate um, kind of um, you know example of where some of our industry's at. I could see people trying to be the you know I want to be the first brewery censored by the BA, right? Because that's my personality, right? And and that's what you know. Hey, you, you can brand yourself however you want. Um, you know, we're not trying to tell anyone how to run their business, uh, but you know, you have, you have to do so understanding that you can't expect the entire industry to rally behind you and want to be associated with that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, there's because this is business, and it's you know. We have to act like professionals, and if you don't want to act like a professional, then you have to face the consequences or reap the rewards of that on your own. And you know, I, I, I say that as somebody who's uh, you know has lots of experience at acting unprofessionally. So um, <laughs> uh, you know, so so that that's where we're at on that issue. You know, I would I would love to see more peer pressure from brewers um, and, and beer drinkers uh, calling out breweries when they have something offensive. Um, That's interesting that you say that, though, because I, I do think that there are consumers who do it, maybe not enough, uh, depending on, on where you fall in this whole thing. But I do think that the brewers are hesitant to criticize other brewers. And, and, and I find that to be not only in issues like this, but also you mentioned before quality of, you know, hey, if you have a, a brewery neighbor down the street who you know is putting out, you know, a diacetyl bomb and, and, and they shouldn't be. A lot of the time it's like, oh, well, you know, that's their problem. I don't want to really say anything. And it's like, that's not the smart thing. And, and as the industry grows, do you think we're at the point where people are more comfortable doing it? And is it more about business and less about camaraderie? What's the... I, well, I, think, I know I just took a hard left on you there. But yeah, yeah. No, but no, I think it's a great point uh, because, you know, there's a fine line between you know, hey, I think you have quality issues and I want to talk to you about it. And I I just happen to think your beer sucks. So right. I'm going to go on, on social media and blast your brewery, right? right? Um, and that's not okay. Either. No, that's so, just a dick move. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, you know, I, I think that, but I think a lot of the peer pressure on both issues should and needs to happen a little more behind the scenes. Um, you know, and like, hey, uh, you know, you're you're the brewery down the street. Um, hey, I don't want to put you on blast, but I noticed this issue. Uh, let's let's work to fix it because your quality issues affect my ability to sell beer sure. in our market. Right. Um, and if that doesn't work, then you know maybe maybe then it gets to the point where some sort of you know public calling out needs to happen. Um, but we also have instances where you know breweries like to literally stick up their middle fingers and and say you know that's what craft is all about when it's yeah. when it's not you know maybe maybe that's what you know maybe inconsistency is is part of your charm uh you know it's <laughs> but and I, and I don't mean that like in a in a in a you know, kind of snotty kind of way but like you know a brewery like Jester King which is world class makes right. you know go, explains that inconsistency is part of their thing from the perspective of they have a yeast you know culture that's forever evolving and you know these beers are forever evolving and you shouldn't expect um you know a batch years later to be like the ones before sure and, but and i you, think people but if you have a brew that. pub where you're making a pale ale and i walk in one week and it's delicious and then the next week it you know smells like creamed corn uh, yes you know, and then the next yeah. week it's something totally different from from that that's the that's the larger right. issue that is yeah. not quality right. right you know it's i don't think anybody could fault jester king or any of those other you know spontaneously fermented breweries or cool ship users or anybody else from and and i agree that is part of the charm of it but right. you know the larger issue is yeah yeah but when i when i put um you know my pilsner in a can and put yeah. it in the grocery store shelf I should be working for it to taste the same every single time. I'd hope so. Right. I mean yeah. that, and if and and I shouldn't saying that. Well, I'm craft, and it just always changes. Um, sounds like a lazy cop out more than anything else. So, and I think that's where brewers should be. You know, not hesitant to say like, yeah, that's not okay. And it's and, and consumers as well. And I, and I think I think consumers are better at it than than brewers right now. I think. You know, beer drinkers don't have a problem of saying these things, uh, which is good. Um, I do think, uh, 
you know, especially in, in certain, um, you know, bubbles that we like to hang out sometimes, like kind of question um, the tasting ability of some consumers and, and kind of wonder, like, what are you, what are you really into here? Because this is, I don't know, I don't understand why you like this. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's that aspect to it. But for the most part, I think I think beer drinkers are fairly good at calling it out and but uh but it's also still a little too easy to sell bad beer right now and hopefully uh hopefully local is not trumping quality um you know I, i think local is important and a great economic you know theory that 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 people should get behind and support but quality has to be you know the top of the pyramid um in the table stakes you know in in and there should be no shame in passing up the local beer because it's bad. Um, and you shouldn't be shamed into feeling bad about it because, well, you're not supporting local. Well, I'm supporting quality first, and then I'll support local. Um, so that, that that's where I think you know beer drinkers are good. Brewers should not be afraid to be a little more vocal, but still try to be tactful. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Scott, if people want to find your brewery, online where do they go uh freetailbrewing.com uh of course um like most people we're in a social media age so yes. social media is a great place so we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram uh and then if you like to hear nonsensical stuff uh you can follow me personally on twitter at uh, beer monkey which is a fun feed to follow uh scott thanks so much this is uh well we're at the end of the show thanks so much for for listening we hope you enjoy what you've heard uh please subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to craft beer and brewing magazine you can learn more at beerandbrewing.com. if you have suggestions on how we can make the show better guests you want to hear uh or questions uh that you might want to hear answered on air please email me at john hall j-o-h-n-h-o-l-l at beerandbrewing.com, or you can join the conversation on my twitter which is john underscore hall again h-o-l-l scott thanks again thank you and uh we'll talk to y'all soon cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew